0: turn to the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke. This morning we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12. Now I was mentioning that last night to Mandy and my seven-year-old Silas was walking through as I said we're going to be looking at Luke 1 to 12 tomorrow and he without even breaking stride said wow I don't think I want to go to church tomorrow. The reason we're, we're doing this is because some of you may remember in December of 2019, a little more than a year ago, we began a study of Luke's gospel called, Who is Jesus? We want to know not what our culture says about Jesus, not even what our Southern Baptist churches or our Bible Belt churches or our American churches say about Jesus. We want to know what does the Scripture say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? So as we study through Luke's gospel... We're learning what the Bible says about who He is, what the Bible says about what it means to follow Him. So we began that back December 2019. We took a break from that in September of 2020 as we reached the halfway point. We stepped away to give you a break from Luke, but now we're coming back. And I don't want to just jump back in, assuming that you all remember everything that we covered uh, in Luke 1 through 12. So what I want to do this morning is just give a refresher. So we're going to be you know, skimming the surface. We're not going deep. We're skimming the surface just to try to refresh your memory of what has transpired between Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 12 before we jump into Luke chapter 13 next Sunday. So we're going to just skim the surface of Luke chapter 1 through 12. Now you can go back and listen to all of those sermons all over again. I know you all want to do that. Um, this coming week, you can listen to all of the sermons from Luke chapter 1 and verse 12 and uh, through chapter 12 on uh, sermon audio or on our church website. But in case you don't want to do that this week, we 'll give you a flyover version of these chapters this morning. Now I 've broken it into three sections to try to help us navigate these 12 chapters together. Uh, three sections. The first section I've called "Breaking into Humanity." And that's chapters 1 through chapter 4, the very first part of chapter 4. We see Jesus breaking into humanity. He did not come into existence, as we've already learned, as we've already seen. Jesus didn't come into existence in a manger in Bethlehem. He broke into humanity in a manger in Bethlehem. But He's always existed from eternity past. And when we get to Luke chapter 1, there's been roughly 400 years of utter silence from God. God has not spoken to his people for more than 400 years. And as we enter into Luke chapter 1, the silence is broken when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, who's in the temple performing his priestly duties to announce the birth of a miraculous son to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. This son would be John the Baptist. And God's silence has been broken, but ultimately his silence is broken... With the turning point of all history, when the angel Gabriel comes again to a young woman by the name of Mary to announce that God is about to become man. That the second person of the Trinity, the exact image and representation of the Father, Jesus Christ, the, the angel of the Lord himself, is about to break into humanity. He's about to become a man, and we see this breaking into humanity begin with his birth. In chapter two verses four through seven, this should be very fresh on our minds, should it not? Luke chapter two, I hope you have your Bibles open because you're going to need them really bad this morning. <clears throat> Luke chapter two, beginning in verse number four, we see a snapshot of his birth. Because there was no room for them in the end. God breaks into humanity with a miraculous, humble birth in Bethlehem. We not only see his birth as we think about him breaking into humanity, but if you look over in chapter 2 and verse number 40, we begin to see short snippets about his boyhood. We don't get a lot of information about Jesus' boyhood, but he's born in this miraculous, humble manner, and now he's beginning to grow, just like All other babies do. And he becomes a boy. And the and the little bit we know about his boyhood is found in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 40. It says the child continued to grow. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So we see that Jesus, even as a young boy, is growing not only in physical strength, but he's growing in wisdom. Isn't that, isn't that just amazing? Does that not baffle your mind that God and the flesh would need to grow in wisdom? Yet God, in hum, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a boy, Jesus had to grow physically. He had to grow in wisdom. Yet the grace of God was always upon him. The favor of God was always upon him. So much so that when they went to the temple... to to worship as they always did, that Jesus remained behind in the temple and baffled the religious leaders. As a young boy, he is baffling the religious leaders with his questions. His parents leave him there, which gives hope for all parents in the room, that the mother and father of Jesus left him behind and didn't realize it for a few days, Then they go back and find Jesus in the temple, communicating with the religious leaders there. And we see in verse number 52 of Luke chapter 2 that when Jesus returned home with them, with Mary and with Joseph, that He submitted Himself to them. And in verse 52, He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It's boyhood. Now, some of you in this room are in the, the place of life called boyhood. Or we could call it girlhood. Or we could call it childhood. And, and our childhoods today, our adolescence today, if you want to call that, is really characterized by one word, and it's the word foolishness. It's like you get a pass all of a sudden to just be foolish until you turn, well, it used to be 18 or 19. Now it's probably like 40 because there's 30-year-olds that are playing Xbox in their parents' basement still. You know, they just haven't grown out of it. Like you as a boy, little boys, you as a girl, little girls, you as young men and young women, teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, you do not get a pass. You need to be growing And wisdom. And sadly, it seems that many are growing in foolishness rather than wisdom. And wisdom, listen, you can get straight A's. You can get straight A's in school and be a total numbskull. Every every adult in this room went to school with somebody who aced every test, was the smartest person in the class, and that now is either dead or in prison because they were numbskulls. Is that a theological word? I don't know. It's the first day of the year. Give us a break, right? You need to grow in wisdom. Wisdom is not just ace and test and being smart up top. Wisdom is being able to take the word of God and apply it to every area of your life. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is being able to take the Scriptures and apply it to every area of your life. And you don't begin to grow as a Christian when you get out of high school or when you get out of college or when you reach quote-unquote adulthood, whatever that is, you need to start growing in wisdom now, young person, young children. Let it be said of you that you're growing in wisdom like Jesus, that you're growing not only in stature like Jesus, but that you're growing in favor with God like Jesus and in favor with man like Jesus. That is not a goal that's too high for you young people to attain to or us old people to attain to. Grow in wisdom, in favor with God. In favor with man. We see that in Jesus' boyhood. We see His birth, His boyhood. And then in chapter 3, we see His baptism. In verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3, Jesus encounters His cousin, John, whose birth was miraculous, whose birth was announced by Gabriel. And in in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Jesus comes to John, His cousin, to be baptized. It says in verse 21, When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. In Jesus' baptism, there's, there's all three persons of what we call the Trinity are present there at that baptism. You've got God the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. You've got God the Father's voice booming out over the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You have God the Son being baptized there. Not because He needed to be baptized, but because He was setting an example for all who would follow Him. And because He was fulfilling all righteousness and all the expectations of the people around Him when he was baptized. And there may be some of you sitting here as we start this new year, and you know, you know that you have never been biblically baptized. You have never been baptized. You know that God has done a work in your heart. God has done a work in your life. God has transformed you. God has made you a new creation. And yet you haven't taken that first step of obedience to submit yourself to baptism like Jesus was baptized And you need, you may need this morning to talk with someone about being obedient and being baptized. Jesus breaks into humanity with a miraculous birth. He he breaks into humanity with a unique boyhood and with an amazing baptism. And then fourthly, we see in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as He's breaking into humanity that He can't bypass a battle. His battle with Satan. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, after being baptized, He's full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. That should raise some memories for us that just like Adam in the garden was tempted by Satan... Jesus, the last Adam, would be tempted by Satan. Not by demons, not by the flesh, not by the world, but by Satan himself. Could you imagine Satan himself tempting you? Not just his cronies, not just his influence in the world, not just your own internal flesh, but Satan himself stepping aside, coming to you to tempt you. That's what Jesus dealt with. That's what Adam dealt with. Like like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and he's being tempted by the devil. But unlike Adam and unlike Israel, who had previously given in to the temptation of the devil, Jesus defeats Satan by standing on the Word of God. He defeats his every temptation and Satan goes away from him. And that should give us hope this morning because all of us are dealing with temptation all of us will deal with temptation to the day we put off this earthly body and step into eternity. We will deal with temptation. But there's some good news. Let me just, let me just share with you real quick 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. It's not in your notes if you're following along. But just listen, you'll recognize the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Jesus was tempted in every way just like us. And He stood firm. And now He's promised to make us a way of escape from temptation so that we can avoid, so that we can resist, and so that we can run from temptation and be victorious as he was victorious. So Jesus breaks into humanity. And then in chapters 4 through 8, we see Jesus beginning public ministry. He's broken into humanity with a miraculous birth, with a unique boyhood, with an amazing baptism, with an epic battle. But then he begins his official ministry in chapter 4, the latter part of chapter 4, down through chapter 8, And he does five things as he he begins this public ministry. As he steps out of the shadows, so to speak, and begins to say, all right, it's time for you to listen to me. It's time for you to pay attention to the teacher now. The first thing he does as he begins his public ministry is in chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. And he reveals himself. And he reveals himself quite appropriately by going home. He goes home to the synagogue and... In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So this is his custom. So apparently, the people in Nazareth knew Jesus. This was his synagogue. Apparently, the people in Nazareth knew that Jesus would often read scriptures in the synagogue. So far, everything is absolutely normal. Jesus has been baptized He's gone to war with Satan and now he shows back up at his home synagogue and as usual, he stands up to read the scriptures. And verse 17 says, The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So far, so good. Everybody's listening to Isaiah say these words. Jesus reading the words of Isaiah. But in verse 20, things begin to shift. Because he he closes the book in verse twenty, he gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and all the eyes and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." That's what we would call in twenty twenty one a mic drop. Okay, he's just read a passage of scripture. And then he said, you want to know what that's about? You're looking at him. And every jaw dropped in the room. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Imagine the audacity for me to walk up here this morning and say, listen guys, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Imagine the audacity, and yet this is exactly what Jesus did and it's exactly what Jesus came to do. He reveals Himself as this one in Luke chapter 4. And listen, if this is what Jesus is about, just think about this with me just for a moment. If this is what Jesus... Is about if Jesus is about preaching the gospel to the poor, not the well to do that can fluff up our budgets, but the poor, not the dignified who can dress appropriately, but the poor, not the dignified who smell appropriately and know how to act, but the poor. If Jesus is about preaching, the gospel to the poor, if Jesus is about proclaiming release to captives, if Jesus is about giving spiritual sight to the spiritual blind and setting free those who are oppressed by the wicked one, if this is what Jesus about is about and we are Jesus' followers and Jesus is the head of the church, why on earth is this not what we're about? That's because we're First Baptist. And we can leave the church off of that. We might be First Baptist, but we're not First Baptist church. Because the church is about what Jesus is about. And Jesus reveals himself and says, This is what it's going to be, people. Not a pathway to success, not a pathway to stardom. Not a pathway to the platform of the Tennessee Baptist Convention Board or the Southern Baptist Convention, but it's going to be a pathway to the lowly. Jesus reveals Himself as the one who would preach the gospel to the poor, who would set free captives and oppressed and the blind. This is the beginning of His public ministry. He reveals himself. And then in chapter 5, he calls his disciples. He begins to call his disciples. In chapter 5, we get this picture of Jesus engaging fishermen, fishermen like Peter, fishermen like Andrew, Peter's brother, fishermen like James and John, the sons of thunder. These guys smell bad. These guys don't have seminary degrees. These guys probably use crude language. These guys are probably rough around the edge. These, these, these men fish for a living. And Jesus finds them and, and, he, and He says, follow me, and they leave their father, Zebedee, James and John do. They leave their boats, they leave their nets, and they follow Jesus. He comes to Levi in, Matthew, in, in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Levi, who has betrayed his people and linked arms with the Romans to get a high-paying job... And in verse 27 of Luke chapter 5, it says, He went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind. And got up and began to follow him. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Levi. When he calls, they leave everything to follow him. And and listen, as I've read through Luke, and as I've studied Luke, and as I continue to study Luke, there is one theme that I think we have completely missed that I've completely missed. And what it means to follow Jesus. It seems as though every single thing about following Jesus in the gospels and especially in Luke, every single thing is about loosening our grip on this world. Everything It's just about loosening our grip on this world. And here we see James and John and Peter and Andrew and Levi, they have to start out by just opening their hand and releasing their grip on everything in this world to follow Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, is that what our Christianity looks like this morning? Are we loosening our grip on this world? Are we clinging to it? Let me just say that one of the reasons we get so wrapped up in politics is because we're trying to hang on to something One of the reasons we get so wrapped up in quote-unquote wanting revival has nothing to do with holiness or the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, but everything to do with maintaining comfort and avoiding losing our grip on what we like in our culture. And let's be honest, a lot of what heaven is for us has nothing to do with Jesus, but everything to do with fishing on the crystal sea, hunting in the Green Valleys. I actually heard a poem in a a funeral sermon that was all about sailing off to fish. That's what we've come to. That's what we've come to in this country. Forget Jesus. Forget the throne. Forget the glories of heaven. Let's go fishing in heaven. Hallelujah, I'm happy there. Forget Jesus, forget God, forget everything. Just give me mama and them and a big bunch of food and a fishing tournament. I'm happy. It's ridiculous. We have to turn loose of all of this. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We loosen our grip on this world, this life. The temporal blessings that we enjoy and we should thank God for. We've got to release and say, if you want them back, you can have them back. If you want everything that I love and value in this life, you can have it. And by His grace, He leaves us with a lot of stuff and everything we don't deserve. But we have to be willing to release our grips. Think about this. Jesus says, follow me. And we need to ask ourselves, where is Jesus? And wherever Jesus is, it requires us to loosen our grips and to turn loose of this, to be where Jesus is. He calls His disciples to leave and to follow Him. And if we are His disciples, He's called us to leave and to turn loose of this life, to follow Him wherever He may lead us to go. He reveals Himself. He calls His disciples. And then it even gets a little more complicated... Because if you drop down to verses 20 to 26 in Luke chapter 6, he begins to proclaim blessings and woes. After a night of prayer, he, he calls his 12 apostles. He decides who the 12 apostles are going to be. And he, and he quickly begins to preach his upside-down messages to the people. Now listen to this upside-down message Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed or happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. All that makes absolutely no sense because that is the opposite of what we consider blessed, and that is the opposite of what we consider happy. How many of us, when we sing, God bless America, are thinking, make us poor make us hungry, make us weep, make us hated. This is Jesus' definition of blessed. This is Jesus' definition of happy. Because those who are poor now, those who suffer now, those who hurt now, have something to look forward to. And then he flips the coin again in verse 24 and says, But woe to you who are rich! For you are receiving your comfort in full. It may seem wonderful, it may seem great, it may seem sufficient now. But listen, it compares nothing to what eternity has. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And on and on he goes, turning everything that we think is right upside down. Thinking, turning everything we think is good upside down. Turning everything we think is bad upside down. It's, it's crazy. This is not how you get a crowd. Joel Osteen can tell you that. This' the last time you heard him preach on Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. proclaiming blessings and woes, and fourthly, he gets unexpected responses. Those who we at least expect, if you turn over to chapter 7, those whom we at least expect, including a Roman centurion and a despised tax collector and even a well-known sinful woman, these respond rightly to Jesus. Meanwhile, those whom we would expect to be lovers of God, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the scribes, the lawyers, the experts in the Jewish law, they reject God's plan. Jesus gets invited as a courtesy call to a Pharisee's house. They have a meal, and this sinful woman walks in, washes his feet, and, of course, the Pharisee scoffs. Jesus was really such a great prophet. He didn't know what kind of lady this was. In verse 47 of Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, Simon, loves little. Unexpected responses. And then we see Jesus in chapter 8 remind us that he, as humble as he is, as different as he is from everything that they had set up as holy and right, he expects fruit. He expects fruit. And he tells a parable about the soils. And he interprets that parable for them in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. The parable is this, he says, The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those when they hear receive the word with joy, but they have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard and as they go on their way they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and they bring no fruit to maturity but the seed and the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. There's only two types of soil. There's not four types, there's two types. There's good soil, there's bad soil. The good soil bears fruit. The bad soil may last no time, a little time, or a long time, but it doesn't bring forth fruit. There's good soil, there's bad soil. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bring forth fruit. And the one who brings forth fruit, I will prune so that he can bring forth more fruit because by this the Father is glorified that we bear much fruit. Jesus expects fruit. He demands a fruitful response. Think about your life. Are you bearing fruit? So from Luke chapter 1 to 8 we're reminded God has broken into humanity with a miraculous birth, a unique boyhood, an amazing baptism, a critical battle. He launches His earthly ministry by revealing Himself in the synagogue, calling some unprofessional men to follow Him, by preaching upside-down messages that draw unexpected responses and setting His standards high, demanding much fruit. The third section we have here is in chapters 9 through 12. Jesus has not only broken into humanity, He's not only begun His public ministry, but now we see Him bringing new methods. His methods are far different than the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the lawyers. And ours, often, in our culture. What were His methods? Number one, preaching. Look in chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. It says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim or to preach the kingdom of God and to perform healing. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staff nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there Do you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they begin going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They were preaching. Jesus himself follows on the heels of their preaching with his own preaching. And in his preaching, he's sowing the seeds of the gospel message and the cost of following him in verses 21 down to verse 27. Jesus began to warn them and instruct them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter's just declared Him as the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says, Don't tell anybody this because this is what's going to happen to me. I have to be killed. And I'll be raised. And it goes right over their head because they have no concept of this whatsoever. But he sows that seed of the gospel message that he had come not to rule from a throne in Jerusalem in the temple, but he had come to lay down his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many, to intercede for his people as a priest. He sowed that gospel seed among them and then he begins to lay down the cost of following him in verse 23 he was saying to them all if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself there is that loosening of the grip on this life and this world and the things we value he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake he is the one who will save it For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He sows the gospel seeds again. In verse 44, in case they missed it the first time, which they did. He says in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. It's like, please just stop and listen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand the statement. In chapter 10 and verse 1, he sends out... 72 more or 70 others, debatable, which it is 70 or 72. To do what? To preach. To go ahead of him and to preach. There's a pattern in Jesus, there's a pattern in his disciples, there's a pattern in his followers in the Scriptures, and it is their lives and their ministries are characterized by preaching. Not preaching from a platform in the four walls of a comfortable building that we call a church, but proclaiming the gospel wherever they were. They were proclaimers. And if we're Jesus' followers, if we're Jesus' disciples, then we need to follow their example and become proclaimers and proclaim the good news wherever and however we find ourselves. He brings a method of preaching. He brings a method of parables. And I'll pick up the pace here. We're almost through. In chapter 10, Jesus tells one of His most well-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard the parable where the Samaritan, the guy who is the least expected to be of help to the injured person, steps in and and helps the injured person and really loves that person just like he loves himself. He went above and beyond But don't miss the point of that parable. The point of the parable is not, hey, you go be good like the good Samaritan. The the point of that parable is, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That's how it begins in chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. It says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, what do you think? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I love God with everything, but who's my neighbor? I want to make sure I get that one covered. And then Jesus begins to show him what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself and basically set up a standard he will never achieve in hopes of bringing him to see his own shortcomings and sinfulness so that he would turn and trust in the Messiah. And that's the point of his parables. They're earthly stories with heavenly meanings and the heavenly meaning is to bring people to him and to help them to see that they need Christ. So his methods were preaching in parables, and then thirdly in chapter 11, verse 1, praying. It happened in chapter 11, verse 1, that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Is it any wonder that he would want Jesus to teach him to pray? Let me give you a fast snapshot back from Luke chapter 3 and verse 21 we see that Jesus' ministry was characterized by praying. In Luke 3, 21, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while He was praying, while He was praying, the Holy Spirit falls upon Him. In chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus Himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. In chapter 6 and verse 12, it was at this time that He went off to the mountain to pray, and He spent the whole night in prayer. To God in chapter 9 and verse number 18. <clears throat> it says it happened that while he was praying along. In chapter 9 and verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings he took along Peter, James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. In chapter 10 and verse 2 he said pray to the Lord of the harvest. That he would send laborers into the harvest. And now we come to chapter 11 and one of his disciples says teach us to pray pray. Why? Because his ministry, his method was prayer, preaching, parables, praying, and then finally, promises and warnings in chapter 12. His teaching begins to heat up, so to speak. His teaching begins to become become more personal. His teaching begins to become more challenging. As he pinpoints the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes as not being for him but against him and calling them out on the carpet. As he begins to tear down their love of money and their desire for wealth. As he begins to call them on the carpet, so to speak, and to warn them that the time is coming when they would all be held accountable. His ministry is characterized by promises and warnings. Look in chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. He says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. So the question is, how's he going to find you? How's he going to find you? He just said, keep your lamps lit. Be on the alert. Be ready. Be on standby. Be dressed for action. Blessed is the one whom the Master finds this way when He comes. How is He going to find you? We covered in one sermon what it took us nine months to cover last year. Isn't that just unbelievable? Not exactly, but we skim the surface... And I hope it's jogged your memory as to what we looked at in chapters 1 through 12. But there's a singular theme throughout. And the singular theme is this. The good news of Jesus Christ has come and it is meant to be spread. That's the theme. The good news of Jesus Christ has come and it is meant not to be kept to ourselves, but it is meant to be spread. Do you know and understand this good news that Jesus Christ broke into humanity He became a man. He humbled himself and took on the form of humanity to live the life that God requires and demands of us. To live a life of sinless perfection. To live a life of holiness. To live a life of righteousness. To check every box that needs to be checked to get us into heaven. Jesus comes and checks them all. And not only does he check every box required to get us into heaven, but he goes to the cross and there on the cross he takes our punishment in our place for all of our sin for all of our iniquity for all of our failures Jesus pays it all he's buried in a barred tomb as we're going to see in the second half of the gospel he raises from the dead he ascends to the right hand of the father and he's interceding even now he's calling even now people like you people like me to turn from their sin To release their grip on this life. To release their grip on this temporal world. To release their grip on the things of this life. And to deny themselves. And to throw themselves upon His mercy and grace for salvation. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Are you ready for Him to return? If not, please, please, please. Call on His name this morning. Talk to somebody you trust this morning to point you to Him. And are you involved in spreading this news? Are you involved in praying? Praying for revival, real revival, real awakening, souls to be saved, missionaries around the globe. Are you praying? Are you giving faithfully? Not only to the church here locally to do local ministry, but are you faithfully giving globally? Are you going here to the ends of the earth? As you're able, are you sending? Are you a part of spreading this good news? This is what it means to be a church. This is what it means to be a Christian. Embrace the gospel. Spread the gospel. And that's what we see in Luke. And that's our hope and our prayer for you as individuals, for us as a church. Would you bow with me? As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, I want to just encourage you right now to speak to the Lord right where you are. I know it may have been like drinking from a fire hose this morning, seeing all the bits and pieces of these 12 chapters. But I want to encourage you in the stillness of this moment, in the quietness of this moment, not to just jump up and run out the door and let let Satan snatch away whatever seed may have been sown in your life, but I want you to reflect on what you have heard this morning about Jesus breaking into humanity. Are you a young person here? Are you a boy, a girl, a teenager? Pray now that God would motivate you, burden you, and help you to grow in wisdom. To grow in favor with God. To grow in favor with others. If you have some of those kind of people around you, pray for them. Lift them up to the Lord right now. Maybe this morning you're past that point. And you're no longer a young person anymore, but you, or you may be a young person. And you know that you have come to know Christ and you've, you're following Christ. He's changed your life, but you need to be baptized. Pray that God will give you the courage to talk to somebody about baptism. Some of you are fighting temptation that nobody knows about in your life. And you need to Pray. For God's help in that, would you just pray in the stillness of this moment? Jesus revealed himself as the one who had come for those who were hurting and in need and less fortunate than most of us. Is is that what we are about? Has he called you to be his follower? If he's called you to be his follower, have you responded? Have you embraced this upside-down message He preached of blessings and, and woes? Are you bearing fruit? Pray now that God would give you fruit, that God would prune you if necessary to bring forth more fruit and much fruit for His glory. Pray that God would spur in you a desire to proclaim His good news and to pray like never before. And pray for those around you who may not be ready. Just pray for those in this room who may not be ready. Those who are listening online, those who are across the road, pray for those around you who may not be ready. And if you are not ready, call on the name of the Lord even now. He is faithful to save. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you that we can see who you are and what you are about in this gospel of Luke. And I pray that you would refresh our memories and bring us back next week to be spurred and excited about what we're going to see in the latter part of this gospel. As you continue to push us and stretch us and teach us and grow us and challenge us to release our grip on this life to follow you. I pray that you would prepare our hearts. I pray for those that have lifted up One another this morning, their concerns this morning, their burdens this morning as they've reflected on what they've heard. I pray for those who may not know you, who may not be ready. Give them the courage to talk with someone they trust before they leave this place. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. And thank you for each person here today. And we'll praise you for what you're doing and going to do in 2021. We know that you are good and you work all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we hope for the future and anticipate what you're going to do in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.